Welcome to the Dreamcatcher Podcast, a place where your dreams can find a voice. I'm your host, Celine Chenoy. Thank you to all of you who return every week to tune in to become a better version of yourself. Make sure you hit subscribe if you haven't already, and rate our show if you enjoyed this episode. Mental models are our perceptions of our external reality that we use to interact with the world around us. And they determine our attitude and the choices that we make in life. So mental models play a critical role in our success and our well-being. And my guest today, Dr. Shri Kumar Rao, has been teaching people all over the world how to develop healthy mental models for many years now. Dr. Shri Kumar Rao is a speaker, former business school professor, and the head of the Rao Institute. He created the singularly powerful course called Creativity and Personal Mastery, which he has taught at several leading business schools, including Columbia and the London Business School. The program has altered hundreds of professionals across the corporate world, including executives from Google, Microsoft, and Merrill Lynch. He has received media acclaim in publications like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the London Times. During our conversation, Dr. Rao will offer us his insight into how we can become more aware of the mental models we habitually use. He provides techniques and strategies to shift negative beliefs and cultivate healthier ones to experience more happiness and satisfaction. And if you like what you heard, please don't forget to like, rate, share, and subscribe to this podcast. Thanks. Hello, Dr. Rao. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastically well, Celine. Thank you for asking. Yeah, I am just so happy that you're here with us today. I had the opportunity to do one of your courses recently, and I really, really benefited from your simple sage advice. And I'm so glad that you're here today to share some of it with our listeners today. My pleasure, Celine. And I also have to say that as I was watching you, I kept thinking to myself, oh my God, he is the wise uncle I never had. <laughs> because I felt like I really, really connected with some of the advice that you gave. And um, because of our co common heritage, I also felt that connection. Yes. Actually, I have a confession to make. Okay. None of what I share is my quote unquote stuff. I have borrowed extensively from the greatest masters the world has ever known, many from the area that we both of us hail from. Now, they understood these great truths, but they spoke in the language and used examples that were pertinent to the time and the geography that they were in. And modern people in a post-industrial society don't necessarily relate to them. So I'm a translator but the ideas are all theirs. They've been tested over millennia and they work. They absolutely work. Right, they absolutely do. And it's just something about the way you talk about it, the way you um, intertwine the narrative with the key takeaways, um, the stories really had a really strong impact on me. So, and I'm sure that a lot of people can agree with me. <laughs> so glad you found it useful, Celine. That's a function you are ready to grow. 
Because it's only when you're ready to grow that it makes sense. Yes, yes. So, Dr. Rao, let's start by talking about your uh, prolific background. Um, You were a former business school professor um, at some top business schools. What made you want to teach the personal mastery and creativity a part of it more specifically? Uh, What actually happened is this was part of my own personal journey. I have a PhD in business from Columbia Business School. I joined corporate America and was hugely successful. I got burnt out by politics. So I said, let me go to academe where everybody's imbued with a quest for pure knowledge and politics does not exist. I have a sadly mistaken politics is alive and well in universities. (laughs) So I joined the academic uh, uh, environment and uh, I stagnated and I was feeling very sorry for myself. You know, I had such a great career, so much potential and I blew it all and I ruined my life and voice me and so on. So the pity party won. Now, all my life, I'd been doing a lot of reading, spiritual biography, mystical autobiography. They take me to a wonderful place. I came back to the real world and it sucked. And I thought if all of this is useful, only if you're sitting quietly thinking peaceful thoughts, but not when you came to the hurly-burly, then it's useless. Mm-hmm. But somehow I knew that wasn't true. I knew that this was very valuable, perhaps even the only thing that was valuable. I just hadn't figured out how to make use of it. So one day I got my bright idea. Why don't I take the teachings of the world's great masters, strip them of religious, cultural, and other connotations, and adapt them into exercises which are acceptable to intelligent people in a post-industrial society. And the thought of doing that made me come alive. So I created that course for me. I I was a marketing guy. So anytime I had a bright idea, my immediate reaction was, will others be interested? Is there a market for it? And if I thought there was, I'd develop it. Otherwise, I'd drop it. This is the first time I did not ask the question. I was going to develop that course because I needed it for me. And my initial hypothesis was, I teach MBAs. We all know what motivates MBAs. Nobody is going to enroll for the course, and that was fine. If they did, wonderful. If they didn't, God bless them. I was going to develop the course because I needed it for me. So I did, and it did well. I moved it to Columbia Business School, and it exploded. And it spread by word of mouth. Students from London Business School came to Columbia on exchange, and they went back and said, it's a great course. you got to have it. So I taught it at Columbia. I taught it at London Business School. I taught it at Haas, the University of California, Berkeley. I taught it at Kellogg, at Imperial College. And now I teach it privately in New York, London, and San Francisco right now because of the pandemic. It's virtual. And uh, in the meantime, I also have a global uh, coaching practice. I have clients on all continents. Wow, that's amazing. And what does that tell you, the fact that people were hungry for this kind of information? Absolutely. What it does tell me is that what I thought was my unique problem is not a unique problem. It's very, very, very widespread. Mm. Because our educational institutions and specifically our top business schools don't even acknowledge the really important issues in life. Who am I? What makes me happy? What do I want my legacy to be? What brings meaning and purpose into my life? They don't even acknowledge it, much less address it. And these are the issues that I tackle head on in my uh, program and in my courses. 
So obviously, these are supremely important and persons want to be a part of that journey. I don't give answers to anyone. I can't. What I can give them is a very powerful framework which they can use to analyze their own situations and come up with the unique solution that's right for them. And as I right. said, I draw mine from the great masters. Right. And what are some of the great masters that inspire you? Probably the person, single person who's had the greatest influence in my life is a sage called Ramana Maharshi, who lived mm-hmm. in the late 19th century through the mid 20th century. He's very contemporary. Then there were others. There's Swami Nisargadatta Maharaj, for example, who uh, passed away in uh, 1981. Then uh, there's Father Anthony DeMello, who is a Jesuit priest. And uh, he died somewhere in the mid-90s, I guess. Then uh, Ramdas, who passed away about a year ago. Yeah, yeah, Ramdas. So these are some of the people who had very significant influences on my life. Mm. Okay, okay, great. People are interested in this, Celine, is mm-hmm. I have the syllabus for my course. Jackie will mm-hmm. make it available to you. And yes. in that, there's a section called Life-Changing Books. So mm-hmm. anybody who's interested in that can go to that section and they'll see some of the uh, teachers and uh, uh, sages through the ages who have contributed in uh, various ways to the opus of work, which is mine now. Okay. And that is on your website, you said? It is on my website, and I'll have yeah. Jackie show with you as well. Okay, perfect. So, Dr. Rod, we're here today to talk about um, uh, mental models. This is something that you talk a lot about in, in your course. Um, you say that our mind is our greatest asset and that it, that it can also hold us back, though. Um, and you say that the way we learn to be unhappy is by buying into particular mental models. Could you please expand on that, please? Absolutely, I could. People always want to be happy. And when I was teaching at business school, I actually had an exercise. said, look, you all want to be happy. What do you have to get in order to be happy? And I put down two items on the flip chart of the screen. And those one was vast wealth and the other is trophy spouse. So, you know, West Wealth, whatever uh, you need, you have a mansion that's so big, you need a golf cart to get to the dining room and so on. And you have your private planes and your yachts and whatever you want. And trophy spouse, whatever your uh, uh, notion of male or female pulchritude is, and that person is your spouse and super intelligent to boot. And the reason I did that is because they were the 800-pound gorillas in the room, but nobody wanted to acknowledge them. So I saved a lot of time by getting them up front. (laughs) And then there are a ton of other things, a job that I find meaning and purpose in, good friends, uh, relaxing. A fit body. Oh, yeah. Things of that nature. Yes. But then I point out that all of that is wrong. There is nothing that you have to do or be, or get in order to be happy. Happiness is inbuilt into you. It's part of your DNA. It's your nature to be happy. 
And of course, the immediate question is, well, if it's my nature to be happy, how come I'm not experiencing nature? How come I'm experiencing my life sucks? That's because there is a model that we believe in without recognizing that it's a model. And the model is I have to get something so I can do something so I can be something. So I have to get a great deal of money so I can travel to exotic places on vacation so I can be happy. I have to be in a relationship so I can have great sex so I can be happy. I have to get something to do something to be something. And we never read this. These are part of what I call the if-then model, which we buy mm -hmm. very strongly. And the yes. if-then model basically states, if this happens, then I will be happy. If I become department chief, if I become CEO, if I had an apartment which is twice as big as mine, if my in-laws move to Australia, if my children <laughs> Harvard. If my children got into Harvard and my neighbor's children didn't make it to any of the Ivies, if this happens, then I will be happy. And countless times we've been shown it's not true. I thought if I got married, I would be happy. I now recognize I married the wrong person. So I should extricate myself from it with as little financial damage as possible and marry the right person, and then I will be happy. The mistake we all make is we think it didn't work and it didn't work because I put the wrong thing on the if side of the equation. What they don't recognize is the equation itself that's broken. The if-then model is flat out false, but nevertheless, we buy into it and that's how we learn to be unhappy. And you don't have to take my word for it. I can prove it to you and I'll do it right now. Yeah. Can you imagine any time when you were confronted with a scene of such spectacular beauty that it took you outside of yourself to a place of great calm and serenity? Yes, or I do. Or a beautiful yeah. valley or a slow cow. You can, right? I saw a full moon in a desert setting. Exactly. Yes. Why did that happen? That happened because somehow inexplicably at that instant, you accepted the universe exactly as it was. You didn't say that's a full moon, but you know there are too many pop marks on that, and you know if only <laughs> I could, uh, you know, ease them out, it would be so much better. Yes. And the moment you accepted the universe exactly as you as it was, your habitual wanting self dropped away. And the happiness, which is an innate part of you, surfaced. I'm suggesting to you right now that your life, right now, with all of the problems you have, your life right now with all of the problems you think you have, is every bit as perfect. But you're striving with might and main to reject one or more parts of it. No, no, not this. This is the way it's got to be. When you do that, you're buying into the if-then model. And as I pointed out, the if-then model is fundamentally flawed. That's how we learn to be unhappy. Yeah. And do you think, Dr. Rao, that social media and just the culture that we live in in general, do you think that makes it even worse? 
Yes, it exacerbates it. Exacerbates, to yeah. Order of magnitude. Yes, definitely. Social. Somebody in one of my programs put it beautifully. Social media is a problem for most of us because we're comparing our outtakes with everybody else's show reels, mm. and I think that's a beautiful way. Yes, that's so true because people put a very. Um, glamorized and uh, uh, sanitized version of their life. They show the best, right? You don't see what's really going on behind the scenes. All, they're not going to put that on, on their profile, like all the sad moments and all the failures and things like that. Exactly correct. You're comparing your outtakes with everybody's shows. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you get, I always advise everybody, all my coaching clients, all of the persons in my program, The most toxic thing you can ever do is compare yourself to anybody else. else. Yeah. Yeah. Ever, ever do that. It's the most toxic. You are unique. You're on a path. You're on the perfect path for you. Mm -hmm. Never compare yourself to anybody, period. Yeah. Yeah, and I think... I think a lot of people need to hear that because we we tend to do we tend to do that right? because we're social animals, right? We will look at what people around us are doing, and that tendency is inbuilt, isn't it? Yes, we are all being conditioned, Celine, and that's the yeah. reason for most of the angst in our life. Yes. So I don't teach people anything. I, if anything, I help them discover what they have acquired, which is not them. You don't have to learn stuff. You have to unlearn stuff. Let me explain second arrows. That's a very important concept. Yes. The Buddha was asking Ananda, his principal disciple, Ananda, if an arrow were to hit you in the arm, would it not be very painful? Ananda Mm. nodded. Yes, Lord, it would be very painful. And if a second arrow would hit you exactly where the first arrow hit, would it not be even more painful? Ananda nodded and said, yes, Lord, it would be even more painful. Then the Buddha had a surprising question. Why then do you shoot the second arrow? Now, you're looking somewhat perplexed, and probably the person's listening would be, so let me explain, and I'll explain by means of a story. There was a woman, she was a good mother. Her, uh, her son grew up to be 16. He got his provisional driver's license and he came up to her one day and said, hey, mom, I'm getting together with a bunch of my friends and I need to take the car. The mother said, mm-hmm. of course not. You can't take the car. You just got a provisional license. Where do you have to go? I'll drop you. No, no, mom, you don't understand. I'm meeting a bunch of my friends and I have to have the car. It's very important for me to have the car. Not only is it very important for me to have the car, but it's very important for you not to be there. So the mom says, no, if I can't be there, that's fine. There's Uber, there's Lyft. Like, no, no, you don't understand. I have to have the car and I have to have you not be there. And the mom <laughs> says, no, but you know how kids are. They beg, deplete, they wheedle. And finally, bit by bit, she started giving way and she got promises. You're not going to drink. No, no, I'm not going to drink. You're going to call. Yes, I'm going to call. You'll be back by 10 o'clock. Yes. And finally, reluctantly, she gives him the car keys. Yes. And of course, once he gets the car keys, he forgets all his promises. He doesn't call, breaks curfew, has too many beers. On the way back, gets into a serious accident, has to be operated on. And the mother is in there at the hospital. And when he's wheeled out to the recovery room, 
She yeah. rushes home to have a quick shower so she could get back to the hospital. And at that time, her friend calls and her friend says, what kind of a mother are you? How could you possibly have let him take the car? You're not a mother. You're a murderer. Oh. You'd be shocked that a friend would say something like that at that time, right? You'd probably be less shocked if I said it wasn't what a friend said to her. It's what she told herself. That is the second arrow. It's bad enough having a child who's been seriously injured in the recovery room of a hospital. Mm -hmm. Does it make matters better to tell yourself that you're a lousy mother? In fact, you're not even a mother, you're a murderer. But we do it all the time. The important thing about second arrows is they're always delivered by means of mental chatter, which is the internal monologue that we have yes. going on in all the time. Yes. That's why it's so important to pay attention to your internal chatter, because no matter what problem you're facing, your mental chatter about that problem makes it at least an order of magnitude and possibly two or three orders of magnitude worse. Mm. Do not shoot. In fact, for most of my clients, if I could get them to stop at the second arrow, they'd be wonderful. Most of them are on their third, fifth, or 26th arrows. <laughs> by the uh, time they realize what's happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's because you get stuck in this loop. You know, we, we have this habitual loop in our head that we've been used to thinking in a certain way for so many years that we don't know any better. Mm -hmm. And I've Very observed true. I've observed this in myself and I've been working, obviously working on on becoming more conscious of it. And I've seen it in the, my loved ones as well. It's you, they know it, there's a better way, um, and they they find it hard to change change the way they think and the way they speak to themselves. So it 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 takes work, right, to change the change that chatter and to change right. our Absolutely. our models. That's what my coaching practice and my courses are all about. We've spent yeah. a lifetime being conditioned, and yeah. uh, what I do is help people decondition themselves. <laughs> And what are some initial steps that we can take, Dr. Rao, um, once we become aware of some of the models that are running us, what are some initial things that we can do? Because I know, as you said, it's, it, it, takes a, it takes a while and it can sometimes be really intensive um, and uh, the, the process of changing that. But people, for people listening now, what are some things that they can do to begin uh, making that shift? A foundation exercise, Celine, in my program is for persons to become aware that they have mental chatter. Mm -hmm. There is mental chatter going on in their heads all the time. Begins when you get up in the morning, is with you right through the day, is with you right now, and is with you when you go to bed. And sometimes it's so loud it prevents you from going to sleep. Mm. Mental chatter is not a problem, it just is. The problem arises because we identify with our mental chatter and unite with it. And then it takes us to all kinds of bad places. That's what the second arrow is about. But if you can step back, you can be a witness to your mental chatter. Here I am telling myself I am a murderer. Or, you know, let's make call the mother Ruth. Here is Ruth thinking she is a murderer. When you step back and become the witness of your mental chatter rather than identify with your mental chatter, it loses a lot of its power over you. 
So the first cornerstone exercise, and this is not a one week or a one month exercise. This is a rest of your life exercise mm-hmm. to observe your mental chat and don't identify with it, observe it. Okay. Um, and where do emotions feature in all of this? What if, because I'm sure um, Ruth in such a situation, she would be overwhelmed by her emotions. So be an how, how would that how would that feature and you know in an exercise like this as well here is ruth feeling sorry here is ruth feeling guilty that she allowed her son to take that you can observe your emotions they will be there but you can be the observer of your emotions rather than be carried away by your flood of emotions mm-hmm. it's just something that you have to work at and as you become the observer of your emotions you find that it is cap- it is possible for you to do what needs to be done and you will be more effective as you do it's always a good idea to practice the exercises that i have formulated and teach when life is reasonably okay on an even keel because selene you are going to be hit by a tsunami it's not a question of will you be hit by a tsunami it's a question of when will you be hit by a tsunami yeah and if you're old enough you've had a couple already or so you know exactly what we're talking about yes <laughs> yes when you're hit by a tsunami it's a wonderful idea to surf and say isn't this a great ride but you cannot learn to surf when the tsunami comes if you want to surf the tsunami it's a very good idea to practice surfing on the 2 foot waves and then when the tsunami hits you've got a reasonable chance that you can surf it you can't begin to surf when the tsunami hits that's what i tell all of my coaching clients that's what i tell people who attend my program master these exercises learn to surf on the 2 foot waves and then when the tsunami hits you've got a reasonable chance that you can surf it and look back and say isn't this a great ride because you have those coping tools right with you have that you can with you exactly correct the biggest benefit of my programs lies not when you're doing it but after the exercises have stopped become ex- stopped being exercises and become a part of who you are yeah. that's when you realize that your entire life has been transformed right you've done right. the bhagavad quest right or you're doing it just go back and listen to the uh, read the comments of previous uh, uh, persons who have taken it yes you know, how many of them will tell you this has completely changed my life No I I I I can understand that absolutely and and what I love about it is is the simplicity of it it's not it's not some deep difficult um complex concepts you know that you that you teach these are simple simple steps that if you take and if you have the discipline to to exercise to do the exercises and to apply it on a regular basis then it can do wonders to your life and I can attest to that yeah. Mhm completely yes yeah um I, and i just want to ask you dr rao if someone is unhappy and really stressed out um about their current situation in their life right now um 
what are some reframing techniques that they can use to view the obstacles in a way that empowers them? Let me share two concepts with you. Yeah. One of those is the flashlight. Your awareness, Celine, is like a flashlight. What does a flashlight do? A flashlight illuminates whatever you shine it on. Mm. Shine it on the ceiling, it lights up the ceiling. Shine it on the floor, it lights up the floor. Your awareness is like a flashlight. And I'm going to prove it to you. I want you to take the flashlight of your awareness and shine it upon the seat in which you're sitting right now. And the moment you do that, you become aware of the pressure of your buttocks upon the chair. You feel the fabric or the leather against the back of your thigh, correct? Mm-hmm. Yes. 30 seconds ago, you were not aware of any of that, but now you are. That's because you've shown the flashlight of your awareness on it. What do all of us do with the flashlight of our awareness? We shine it on the two, three, or four things that we think are problems in our life. Not on the two or three things that are problems in our life, but the two, three, or four things that we think are problems in our life. And the immense number of ways in which we are truly blessed. You know, do you have to bother about whether you're going to have dinner on Sunday? Do you have a bed to sleep in? Do you have a roof over your head? Any of these is a big deal in a big part of the world, correct? A big part of the population? Absolutely. But when I point that out, you can say, yes, you are incredibly privileged. But you don't feel incredibly privileged. You feel put upon and stressed out. That's because of where you shine the flashlight of your awareness on. You shine it on your apparent problems. And many things which are good in your life, the many ways in which you're privileged, you don't shine the spotlight of your awareness on them. And they go by unseen, unfelt. Flip that around. Consciously, deliberately shine the flashlight of your awareness on the many ways in which you're truly blessed. Do it last thing at night before you go to bed. Do it first thing in the morning. Don't go to the space, oh my God, there's too much to do and I don't have enough time to do it all. Consciously, deliberately shine the flashlight of your awareness in the many ways in which you are blessed. And do this many times through the day. It's my hope that you will eventually get to the default emotional domain of appreciation and gratitude. And the reason you want to be in the default emotional domain of appreciation and gratitude is when you're there, you're not anxious, you're not nervous, you're not fearful. The two cannot coexist. It's a very simple technique, but it's a very powerful technique, provided you use it diligently. And if you use it diligently, very soon it will become second nature. That's one very powerful method. And let me share another one for you. This one comes from an old Sufi story. It talks about a man and his son, and they lived lived in a beautiful valley, and they were very happy, but they were also very poor. And the man got sick and tired of being poor, and he said, decided he was going to become a rich man, and he was going to do that by breeding horses. So he bought a stallion, didn't have money to buy a stallion. He borrowed it heavily from the neighbors. And the very day he got the stallion, it kicked the top bar loose from the paddock where he housed it and ran away. And the neighbors came around and said, you were going to become a rich man, but your stallion has run away and you still owe us money. You are screwed. 
And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? That stallion fell in with a group of wild horses, which were close to the man's place. He was able to entice them into the paddock, which he had repaired, and escaped was no longer possible. So all of a sudden, he had the stallion back, plus about a dozen wild horses. And by the standards of that village, that made him a wealthy man. Yes. And the neighbors said, we thought you were destitute, but fortune has smiled upon you. How lucky you are. And they said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? The man and his son started to break the horses so they could sell them on the market. And one of the horses threw the man's son and stomped on his leg. And it broke and it healed crooked. And the neighbors said, he was such a fine young lad. And now he'll never be able to find a girl to marry him. How sad. And the man shrugged his shoulder and said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? That summer, the king of the country declared war on the neighboring country. And press gangs moved through the villages, rounding up all the able-bodied young men to serve in the army. But this man's son was spared because he had a crooked leg. And the neighbors had tears in their eyes as they rolled around. We don't know if we'll ever see our sons alive again, but you still have your son. How lucky you are. And he said, good thing, bad thing, who knows? And it goes on like that forever. Mm -hmm. Look back on your own life and ask, can I remember any event, any occurrence that at the time it happened, I thought this was terrible, but I can now look back and say, hey, that wasn't so terrible, or maybe even that was good? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you can. Lots of people can. Yeah, I definitely. I can. I mean, at the I time, it felt it felt like the worst thing in the world. But in retrospect, it's like, yeah, that definitely that made me stronger. And uh, it... Uh, it took me to where I am right now, which is usually a, a better place. Correct. Yeah. I was speaking for the Global Executive Summit of the Entrepreneurs Organization, and somebody mm -hmm. in the back stood up and said, Professor Rao, got a perfect example. He was an IIT graduate, got a master's from Stanford, got a job at a high tech company, he was looking forward to building his career. And uh, he had an immigration problem as a result of which he had to leave the country. He thought his mm -hmm. life was over. You know, among other things, he had student debt. And when you have student debt in dollars and you're earning in rupees, it's not a very nice place to be in. Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> but he said, Professor Rao, as a result of my being forced out of the country, I met this wonderful lady who's now my wife. I teamed up with a couple of my engineering school buddies and we started a company. It's going gangbusters. All my clients are in America. I come here at least six times a year and I have a picture perfect life. And none of this would have happened if. I had not been forced out. So if something happened in the past that at the time it happened, you thought this was terrible, but you can now look back upon it and say, that was actually quite good. Is it possible that what you're today about to classify terrible could in X years turn out to be wonderful? Is it possible? Just asking yourself that question will move you to a different emotional domain. Because one of the things, Celine, it's important for your listeners to know is that whenever an event occurs, any event, it does not cause suffering. Suffering begins the instant you label that event, this is bad, this is terrible, I cannot bear it. Mm. You lose your job, you get fired. Now you have a lot of spare time. But you lose your job, you get fired, and you go, oh, my God, how am I going to meet my mortgage payment? This is terrible. And the moment you label it, this is bad, this is terrible, at that instant, suffering begins. But, Dr. Ra, I have a question. How do you balance that perspective with uh, the need to be 
proactive about actually changing your situation. Because if you did lose your job, you need to start looking for other jobs, right? You need to find another source of income. So how do you find that balance between, you know, actually, you know, taking action to change your situation for the better and also maintaining that emotional equilibrium? You go immediately into that. You lose your job. And whereas previously you said, oh, my God, this is terrible. You then ask yourself, is there any possible way in which this could turn out to be a great thing? Is it Mm. possible? Just asking yourself that question moves you to a different emotional domain. Mm -hmm. And then ask yourself the next question, what can I do to Mm. actually make it fantastic? And you move seamlessly from the realm of despair to the realm of possibility. Possibilities. Got it. You have to cultivate that. And you have to cultivate it with all things that happen to you in life. Not is this terrible, but what can I do to make this a wonderful thing? And it doesn't matter whether what you envisage happens or not. The very act of going out and trying it moves you to a different emotional domain. And that is what we're talking about. And when you do that, you become incredibly resilient. Nothing ever faces you. There is no tragedy in your life because you don't define it as tragedy. You define it as this happened. Right. And what if you have people around you who don't think that way? Who is one of the biggest challenge because yes. other people will always control your emotional domain if yes. you let them. People yes. are always happy to write the story of your life if yes. you let them. If you this let is them. where the bonus of, is on you to decide this is the emotional domain I'll occupy. And just because everybody else is doing something which I can see is dysfunctional, doesn't mean I have to do it. You can't change other people. Some of them are ready, so if you give them a hint, they'll jump on your bandwagon. But many of them will not even understand what you're talking about. They have to live their own life and learn their own lessons, and that's one of the most difficult things for an individual. Especially when the other people who are behaving so dysfunctionally are close to you. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's hard. That's really hard. But yeah. there's really nothing you can do. Yeah, I have a couple of them in my family. So it is something that I I have to deal with on a regular basis. So but you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Dr. Rao, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. Um, it has been such a true honor to talk to you. I so appreciate you making the time to be here on the show. Thank you, Celine. It's been my pleasure entirely. So anyone listening uh, who wants to learn more about Dr. Rao and his programs, you can visit his website, theraoinstitute.com, and the link will be in the description box. <laughs> All right, Dr. Rao, um, I hope you you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed what you just heard, please subscribe to my podcast and feel free to share it with your friends and family. Take care and speak soon.